0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to continue in our study of Galatians. But when we look at chapter 3, I hope you see this as a significant turning point in Paul's letter. As we've been discussing together, Paul has been somewhat on the defensive. You'll remember Matt told us last week that Paul has been accused of striving to please men. Some are suggesting that Paul has compromised the truth in order to win a following with the Gentiles. That this former Pharisee is now rejecting the revelation of God to the Jews in order to gain an audience with the Gentiles. And that in the end, he's only in it to make a name for himself. We see through what we've looked at so far that Paul has been... Uh, Up front, he says, look, if you're talking about my life before Christ, you're absolutely right. I was in it to make a name for myself. He says, I was a devoted Pharisee advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. He says, I was proving to be more zealous for our ancestral traditions than, than most other people. He said, I persecuted the church even with the intent to ultimately destroy it. So, yes, if you are talking about my life before Christ, I was, in fact, on a mission for myself. See, Paul was a rising star among the religious leaders, the very people who in that culture held all the power and control. So, sure, Paul was in it for himself, that is, until Jesus literally stood in the way. Paul explains how the message of the gospel that he now proclaims is not something that he came up with on his own. It was a direct revelation he received from Christ himself. A revelation confirmed by God as he spent three years on sabbatical in the Arabian desert. A message later affirmed, at least in two other conversations between Peter and the other apostles who were in agreement with that message of the gospel, a message that Paul felt so strongly about, he was willing to put his reputation at stake by confronting Peter, one of the pillars in the church. See, Paul is on the defensive, but not to prove his own worth among the people. He's not defending his own reputation. And as a lot of scholars suggest today, I'm not even sure that he was on the defensive to to prove his role as an apostle. In fact, I believe his primary goal was to defend the integrity of the gospel message. This really wasn't about Paul at all. It was about the message that he was proclaiming. The gospel of saving grace through faith in Christ alone. A gospel that utterly destroys all previous attempts to be righteous in the eyes of God. Paul even said, he says, look, if I or an angel from heaven were to come down to you and preach a message different than what you've heard from me, then let them be cursed. Because he understood the impact of manipulating this gospel message. There's only one gospel message. There's only one plan of salvation. There's only one name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. And if we don't get this one thing right, then we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So so Paul has been on the defensive, but not for his own reputation. He's been on the defense for the integrity of the gospel. And now here in chapter 3, he shifts from the defense of that gospel to help explain the power of the gospel. He wants the Galatian church to understand that the power that saved them is the very same power that continues to set them free. That the gospel is not some historical message of something done in the past that no longer applies to your life. That it has daily application to the point that I would suggest to you this morning that we should relearn the message of the gospel every single day. I think that's why Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians, because they've forgotten the power that they once believed. And he's telling them, you've got to relearn the gospel. Every single day. So before we look at that together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father I believe this is a powerful truth. In our passage this morning. and So I want to pray. That you prevent anything from in me. From standing in the way. By the power of your spirit. At work in the hearts of your people. Would you make it crystal clear. How this applies. And how it impacts us. Personally. Marriages, families, relationships. Lord, we we need you to reveal some truths that we cannot come up with on our own. We need the Spirit of God to work in the heart of his people. To accomplish his purpose in our lives. So by your grace, and that's the only reason why, by your grace and because of your love and mercy, would you have your way with us this morning. We belong to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, if you would, turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we will begin where Matt left off last week. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. And if you would, just follow along with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, continuing to write, says this You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now I want to pause there because those are some strong words right off the bat as he turns in his letter to the Galatians. And I want you to think about it. How would you feel if, if someone you respect said that to you? John, John, listen, you're you're being foolish. Paul says that they're being foolish because they are believing a lie. It's as if someone has bewitched them. Someone has put a spell on them and distracted them from what is absolutely true. A truth that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. A truth that Paul knows the Galatians once believed. And yet now they're being led astray. In Psalm chapter 14, David describes a fool in this way. He says, a fool is a man who says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, a fool is a person who tries to navigate life apart from divine guidance. And in our context, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is a person who is no longer directed by a truth they once believed. Now, don't miss that because it's the central point of everything he's going to say. A fool, in the context of Galatians, is a person who is not living by a truth they once believed. So look again at verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified through the gospel message that Paul presented. He says in verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. So one question, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul confronts this issue with one very important question. He says to the Galatians, Did you come to faith by keeping the law or by trusting in Christ? Think about it, Galatians. Did you come to faith by keeping the law or by trusting in Christ? And now I want you to keep in mind that the the Galatian church is primarily Gentile, not Jew, okay? So this is not a difficult question. It's really a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. The Gentiles knew nothing, nothing about the law when they came to faith in Christ. In fact, let me explain how Paul perceived the Gentile apart from Christ. He says it in Ephesians. He says, you were separated from Christ. He says, you were excluded from the nation of Israel. He says you were separated from the covenants of promise. He says you were without God and without hope in the world. So Paul is describing in Ephesians who the Galatians were apart from Christ. So the answer is obvious. They came to faith through grace alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law. We learn from verse 2 that the evidence of that faith the proof of that faith is that the presence of the Holy Spirit. It says it there in verse 2, that you received the Spirit, not by works of the law, but by hearing and faith. And so we need to ask ourselves, so what does that mean? How do you, what's the evidence of the Spirit? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it working of certain miracles? Those may be gifts of the Spirit, but it's not evidence in the Spirit because it applies to some, but not all. If we're going to be validated by something, it needs to be a a something that applies to everyone, without exception. So the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer is this. The presence of the Spirit in the life of all believers is what opens our eyes to see the truth. Paul is very clear when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit is what opens our eyes to see the truth. The presence of the Spirit is what convicts our heart of the sin that is present. We know from Ephesians that apart from the Spirit, we live in the lust of the flesh and in the desires of the flesh that by nature, apart from the Spirit, we are children of wrath. See, apart from the Spirit of God at work in our life, we are slaves to sin. So the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the truth. It exposes our heart to recognize our sin. The Spirit reveals the grace of God in the forgiveness of Christ. It empowers us to faithfully obey. This is the presence of of the Spirit that is evident in the life of every single believer. And and I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, that Paul saw the evidence of the Spirit in the life of the Galatians. Which is why it continues in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, see, there it is, he knows it's true. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if it wasn't vain, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? And then in verse 6 he says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul confronts them after Asking this rhetorical question by saying, How can you acknowledge a truth of salvation that no one is going to deny? That you came to faith in Christ alone by grace alone. How can you acknowledge that truth and then refuse to live by it? See, that's what's foolish. Needing God to come to salvation but no longer needing Him to walk in faith? So Paul asked him, so did you just suffer in vain? I think when he's talking about suffering here, I think he's talking about the impact of being set apart because of their faith in Christ. Because in that society, there were many who suffered as having put their faith in Christ in a society who did not acknowledge that as truth. Okay? It was not popular to be a Christian during this time. So many of them put their faith in Christ and suffered by being set apart, having been rejected by friends, having been rejected by family, having been rejected by society. And so he's asking, so did you suffer all that separation for your belief in Christ to somehow now try to find comfort by fitting in? See, because the Judaizers are the ones who've come in and said, hey, you need to be like us. If you want to receive the blessings of God, you need to fit into the family of God. So Paul says in verse 5, but if that's true, if that's true, then how do you explain the miracles God has already done? How do you explain the transforming work of God through the power of His Spirit in your life before the law? Is that something that happened because of what you did for Him? Or because of what he did for you? Are you that good? Or is he that good? Look at how he continues. Verse 6 again, he says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, In the Old Testament, to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Paul continues this argument by shifting his attention to Abraham. And we should ask ourselves as we read this passage, why Abraham? Why does he become a central part of Paul's argument here? Well, one of the main reasons is because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. So if you want to be included, as the opponent suggests, among the people of God, you've got to go through Abraham. Not only that, one of the signs of being included into the people of God is circumcision, also given by God to Abraham. So Paul goes directly to the person that his opponents would have pointed to to make their argument as well. And he says, okay, good. Let's start with Abraham. And he begins by quoting a very familiar passage in Genesis chapter 15, where he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That word, reckoned, describes a person who receives credit for something they did not earn. To be reckoned. This would be like someone who received a billion-dollar donation into their bank account, and there was nothing they did to deserve it. Okay? That's reckoned. But instead of money here, we're talking about righteousness. And Paul is making the point that Abraham didn't receive that gift of righteousness because of anything he did for God. Instead, it became a gift because of what God had done for him. In fact, if you look back at Genesis chapter 15 in its context, Abraham is trying to understand what he needs to do. You see, God has promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And we know that now to be the nation of Israel. He goes on and tells him that there would be a blessing through the nation of Israel to all the families of the earth. The only problem is that Abraham and his wife Sarah are unable to have children. She's barren. So Abraham is trying to reason in his mind, how is this going to happen? So he goes to God and he says, should I adopt? Should I adopt an heir in order for the blessing to come through that heir? It is a reasonable question. And God says, no. No, he says, the promise of the blessing will come through your own seed. He then takes Abraham out into the night sky, and he tells Abraham to look into that brilliant night sky, and I want you to imagine this not like we see it today because we have all these lights in our city that disrupt what you can see in the darkness of the sky, but if you've ever been in the mountains where there are no lights from the city and you look up into the sky, you are overwhelmed by the stars that you see. So that's the kind of night that Abraham would have walked out into. And God basically says, count them, count them. And I'm sure Abraham thought to himself, no, can't. And he says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Verse 6 says that in response to this revelation from God, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Even though Abraham in that moment still did not have any answers any different than what he had before that conversation with God, he decided in that moment, I will trust in the one who does. And in that moment, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul says, your righteousness, Galatians, comes through faith just like his. You become a part of God's family, not because of something you do, but because of something you believe. In fact, the Old Testament promise to Abraham was fulfilled in your New Testament promise or faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the promised heir that came through the nation of Israel that would be a blessing to all the families of the world. See, the gospel that Paul preaches is not God's plan B. There's only one plan of salvation. Paul says in verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Not through Abraham, okay? The word is important. Not through Abraham, as if needing to be one of his descendants, but with Abraham, following his example of faith. Abraham, the believer. So yes, Abraham is important, but not as his opponents are suggesting He's important because of his example of faith that, by the way, precedes both circumcision and the law, not even on the table at this point in God's conversation with Abraham. And yet it was reckoned to him as righteousness. All the blessings of God came to Abraham, the believer, not because of something he did, but because of something he believed. Now, keep in mind the context here. Paul is writing to the Galatians who once believed this very same truth. But now they are not living by that truth. It's like their life is on autopilot and God is no longer the one directing them. So look at how he continues in verse 10. For as many of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. That's key. All things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And I want to pause here. He will eventually go through four Old Testament com- uh, quotations. We just witnessed three of them. But they're very strategic in how he's using them and what purpose they serve. So I don't want to miss what he's saying there. I think sometimes when we read the New Testament, we just kind of breeze past these Old Testament quotations. But what he's trying to do is use the argument of his opponents to prove the reality of the gospel. Okay. So the first quotation that he pulls from the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. You don't need to look there, but you can write it down. That's the quotation that he's using. In the context of that quotation is Israel's rehearsal of the covenant promises of God. Now, you remember this scene. This is where some got onto and stood on Mount Ebal, and some stood on Mount Gerizim. Remember that? The ones on Mount Ebal rehearsed the curses of God for those who disobey the the covenant promises. On Mount Gerizim are those who rehearse the blessing of God for those who follow and obey the commandments of God. They began with the curses, and they said, cursed is the one who worships false idols. Cursed is the one who does not honor his father and mother. And he goes on and on and on. Before going to the blessings, they go to verse 26, which is what Paul quotes in this passage. And it says, cursed is anyone who does not do all the law commands. In other words, perfect obedience is the only way to avoid condemnation of the law, which is why Paul then goes to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Because if no one is justified by perfect obedience, then, as he says, the righteous man must live by faith. See the contrast? In its context, Habakkuk is a prophet warning Israel about the coming judgment of Babylon. A judgment, by the way, that is coming because of Israel's disobedience. And yet, despite this coming judgment, the righteous, that remnant remaining within Israel, live in belief of the promise of God's future deliverance. See, they don't argue with God. They're not saying, God, we don't deserve this. This is not right. They know He's right. They just rely on His grace. They're trusting in God to be faithful even when they are not. Paul says then in verse 18, be careful. It's a warning. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 is a warning to try to to earn God's favor instead of relying on God's grace. He says, be careful. Because if you rely on the law, you will be judged by the law. Anything less than perfect obedience will result in the curse of eternal separation from God that last point Paul makes then moves into his final Old Testament passage. Let's look at that together in verse 13. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might become might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the spirit. Through faith. As I read it and began to understand Paul's argument this past week, this is what I would call a biblical mic drop. Okay? (laughs) What he just said here would have caused everyone to stop dead in their tracks. Paul says, look, this ultimately boils down to one thing. It has to be all or nothing, one or the other, okay? This ultimately boils down to one thing. You either are justified by your perfect obedience or by trusting in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Boom. That's it. One thing. You are either going to rely on your ability to live in perfect obedience to the law, fulfilling it to the letter, Or you will rely on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Because remember, as he says in our passage, Jesus was crucified. He was cursed. But not because of his sin. It was because of yours. It was yours. The Bible tells us, he who knew no sin became sin. That sin, we need to embrace this reality. That's our sin. He who knew no sin became our sin. Only by faith, in his sacrifice, can his righteousness be credited to your account. If you want to experience the blessing of Abraham as the people of God, you've got to get there the very same way he did. Faith. Faith, faith in God's promise, trust in God's deliverance, not because of what you have done for him, but because of what he has done for you. Do you see the argument? I want you to keep in mind, again, in this context, Paul is speaking to a people who believed this truth, but who are no longer living by that truth. They foolishly rely on their own ability to navigate life apart from dependence upon Christ. Paul is saying, look, it's all or nothing. (laughs) One or the other. You can't have both. You cannot add to something that in and of itself is completely sufficient. Listen to me here. There is no such thing as the unfinished work of Christ. Doesn't exist. All or nothing. One or the other. Jesus is either everything or he's nothing. You decide. So let me give you one of the ways that I I think this truth penetrates into our daily lives. I've had conversations with a number of people in recent weeks, recent months, who find themselves in a variety of places, many of them difficult places, sometimes because of things happening in their own life, sometimes because of things happening in the lives of those that they love. Some have admitted to just doubt and discouragement in the midst of those circumstances. Some have gone so far as to say that I'm not even sure any of this stuff is even true anymore. I want to be careful and I want to be sensitive, but I want to be very, very clear. If you want to find security in your convictions, you need to relearn the gospel every single day. If you want to find security in your convictions, you need to relearn the gospel every single day. Yes, we struggle with doubt And so we need to be reminded about what Christ has done. We need to look at the faithfulness of our God. Not because of us, but because of Him. Relying and trusting on Him. So that He can diminish our doubt, not because of what we must do, but but because of what He has done. We've got to relearn that. When we struggle with discouragement, we need to remember what He said He will do. The Bible tells us that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. What that tells us is that there is not a thing that God has promised that will not ultimately be fulfilled because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Period. End of story. No questions asked. And so if we want to overcome discouragement, we've got to be able to trust in the one who has all the answers even when we The bottom line is this. You cannot find comfort in the promises of a stranger. It just doesn't work. Somebody calls you up on the phone, you have no idea who they are. You assume it's probably a telemarketer. They're promising you something. I don't believe a word they're saying. Right? You cannot find comfort in the promises of a stranger. I fear that many in our church, at the church at large, Struggle in their faith because they do not live in dependence upon Christ. Yeah, they they understand the gospel. They're very clear in what it means to have faith in Christ. I'm not doubting their salvation, but like the Galatians, they do not live by a truth they once believed. Instead of a life centered on Christ, they try to navigate life on their own. And as our passages told us, it's foolish. It's foolish to once depend on Christ and then try to navigate life apart from Him and be okay with that. It's just foolish. We have to reapply the truth of the gospel every single day because we are all prone to wonder, right? A couple of weeks ago, Terry and I and the boys had some time together, we went to the lake. It's our favorite place to get away as a family. I did it growing up as a kid. We're doing it as a family now. And if there's one of the things that we've learned throughout the years when we go to the lake in the heat of the summer is you've got to reapply sunscreen often, right? I mean, we can do it in the morning, and yet when we're out there and we're in the water, we're putting on life jackets, we're flying around on the inner tube, okay? Eventually, it's going to come off. And if you don't reapply, you will get burned. That's just a fact. OK, well, in a similar way, if you don't reapply the gospel to your daily life, you will get burned. It's going to happen. There are too many things happening around us that intentionally, because of our enemy, distract us from the truth. As we wade into the waters of this world, as we are influenced by all these distractions around us, we are foolish if we think we can go through our entire life applying the gospel once and calling it good, we have to reapply the truths of the gospel every single day. We only find comfort in the one we have come to know to be true because of a daily pursuit. The gospel reminds us of God's goodness. The gospel reminds us of God's faithfulness. The gospel reminds us of God's love, a hope that is found in him, not us. Like Abraham, we're learning to trust in the one who has all the answers, even when we don't. We're going to sing a song as we close that says, has a line in it, and it says this. It says, we are confident and covered by the power of his great love. Let me say that again. Now listen to me. It says, we are confident and covered by the power of His great love. And I need to ask you, in this moment, before we sing those words, I need you to ask yourself, is that true in my life? Are you trusting in His provision, or do you try to navigate life on your own? Are you confident and covered by the power of His great love? Let me encourage you. If you want to be in a better place in life, I need to urge you to be in His presence. To be reminded of the message of the gospel every single day. There's no such thing as an unfinished work of Christ. Jesus is either everything or He is nothing. And so let me urge you to discover the joy that is found Through faith in Christ alone, not based on what you must do, but because of what he has done for you. And let me tell you, on a personal level this morning, I am right there with you. I'm needing the very same thing. I'm discovering every day how weak I am apart from him. And so we're in it together. Let's sing this song, if you would. Go ahead and stand together. there it is. That's the one thing. That's the gospel. That's what we need to relearn every single day. And sometimes we need to be reminded because sometimes we are in places where it's hard to remember those truths and we need to have someone who loves us speak those truths into our life. And I hope in some way that maybe that was true for you this morning. And I pray that you carry that maybe even through the words of that song we just sang and repeat it to yourself over and over again. We're about to go swim in the world, and it's full of lies and distractions and deceit. So keep replying the gospel every single day. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.